Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Well, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger had some company yesterday. Uh, you had 35 Republicans who defy the former guy's demands uh, for a cover-up and Kevin McCarthy's opposition and the uh, whipping of the leadership. Uh, nearly three dozen Republican representatives voted to form a bipartisan independent January 6th commission. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that 84% of the Republican conference, 175 Republicans voted to memory hold the entire insurrection. So joining me today, morning after a very, very busy day, Adam Kinzinger. How you doing, Congressman? Oh, you're so negative, Charlie. You know, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm good. I'm, as, I'm feeling like you are, but I'm good. <laughs> well, no, no, I just, it's sort of the land of contradiction. I mean, these two facts are, they're, they're, they're both true at the same time. It's kind of good that you have 35, that, you know, that broke with the leadership to support the commission. Uh, bad news is, you know, 84% of the Republicans are still in with, uh, you know, listening to their master's voice from the Orange of Versailles. I, I'll tell you, I, I don't get it because this to me was like, of all that, you know, whether it's impeachment, I mean, sadly, even election certification, which is a basic job, you know, of all the votes, this one, I think, is it, to me, seemed like the easiest. Like, yeah, let's do a commission. We, we were able to negotiate a better deal than we had. And uh, and like all this. Yeah, 35. It's great. It's actually way more than I thought. But I'll tell you, the number of people that would come up to me or us or, you know, some of those of us that were voting for this that said, Boy, I admire you. I wish I could do it, but my district, it's like, I, this was the time when I finally was thinking, you know, that excuse is just getting so old. It's just so old now. Well, you know, you're, this is, this is worth spending a little bit of time on because, you know, if there was one off ramp to the crazy, this one does seem like the easiest, right? Because it's a bipartisan, yeah. it's a bipartisan independent commission that is trying to get to the truth. The truth is usually not that controversial. It had been negotiated by one of your Republican colleagues. Um, and, and, and yet, so I guess when you, when you put it that way, um, why only 35? Just, I mean, it's so just, I, you know, it's it's what you run into when you when you you know have been out here. I feel like the old jaded guy. I'm 43, and uh, but you know, you, you, it, I started to hear from people. Oh well, I hear that the staff gets hired by the Democrats. Well, you know, Kaka would say no, that's not true. Oh well, I heard that if this happens, then that. No, that's not true. And so everybody's looking for the little reason why then they can go against it, not based on yeah, you know, we do need answers January 6th. But this is just the wrong one. It's like the people that would vote against impeachment and say, you know, if the article was written slightly differently, I would have been there. But as it is, I have to vote. No, it's just again, it's it's if it's a legitimate concern, I get it. But this isn't this is just how do you get out of this the easiest and appease all sides? I think it's too late. I think you just have to take a stand and pick a side now. Yeah, okay, let, let me just play a soundbite from the debate yesterday, in, including why you need a commission and the questions that we still need answers to. Let me just play this soundbite. The American people and the Capitol Police deserve answers and action as soon as possible to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. We must find answers to the many questions surrounding that day. What information was known leading up to January 6th? Why was that information not shared with the proper entities? Why were Capitol Police officers left so unprepared? Who failed to provide them with support? 
Why did it take so long for reinforcements to come to their aid? How can we improve the decision-making and bureaucracy that is clearly hampering the Capitol Police and security of the Capitol complex? How can we ensure that the Capitol, members of Congress, and our staffs are secure from attacks? And how do we ensure that this is a safer place for members of the Capitol Police Force who risk their lives every day to protect us? These are only a few of the many questions that need to be answered. The American people and the Capitol Police deserve those answers. Okay, now that's really, really good. And what's extraordinary about that, Adam, um, Congressman, is that it's a, a Republican. That's your colleague, John Katko, the ranking member of the Homeland Security Committee, who negotiated this compromise in good faith and then was kneecapped by Kevin McCarthy. Totally, totally. Yeah, and I, it's, 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 that's, so here's the thing with, with John. He had started, you know, at the beginning when you had, I don't know, Pelosi, I think, had recommended a commission of 11 Democrats, seven Republicans. And we all were kind of like, look, that's just going to turn into a, that's going to turn into a not serious investigation. And so, you know, Catco was empowered. Look, if you can do a couple of even, you know, make it even, we have this great idea of retired members to take it out of the politics. Um, you know, then you can get a real thing. So like, yeah, that's awesome. And everybody was, was good to go. And then, you know, of course, I guess we didn't hear from Mar-a-Lago yet and that's what changed everything. But, you know, it's, it's interesting, Charlie, the number of, of, uh, Capitol police officers who I think, you know, probably in the past as federal employees were Democrats now kind of skew, certainly more Republican, but that have thanked me just for speaking out because they've said, I mean, Michael Fanone himself has said to me, you know, he, he's a Republican or was a Republican and says, now you feel isolated because obviously the Democrats aren't really still eager to honor law enforcement because it kind of goes against their base. And now Republicans are acting like we didn't get the, you know, SHIT kicked out of us on the, on the front of the Capitol. And, uh, and I don't get it. And, and yeah, the courage of John Kako to stick to it is, is good. That's leadership. Uh, but the many people that basically decided to, to throw him under the bus, it's really going to be hurtful for Kevin. And I think it may ultimately cost him any chance of speakership. OK, so I want to come back to that in, in a moment. But you mentioned Michael Fanon. You've been doing something and you, you create, you know, push back if you want. But you've kind of been trolling Kevin McCarthy on this. Um, but it's a legitimate question. Why won't Kevin McCarthy meet with Michael Fanone, uh, this police officer who almost lost his life, who clearly has something to say about what happened on January 6th and what it actually means to back the blue. So talk to me a little bit about Michael Fanone and why Kevin McCarthy won't even talk to him. So Michael is, uh, you know, he's the one that was basically on CNN a couple days later. Mm-hmm. The dude, the dude with neck tattoos and everything. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you look at him, you're like, that dude's a Republican, gotta be. And, uh, and you know, he's just the one he was telling, you know, he got, he got that you shoot him with his own gun. He got tased seven times in the neck. He had not a heart attack. He had heart failure. His heart failed on him. He was unconscious for five minutes. And I've seen his body cam video where, you know, the whole thing where at the end, he just, he wakes up from five minutes of unconscious. Once they finally pulled him inside, thought he was dead, tried to revive him. And his first thing he says, I'm going to get choked out. First thing he says is, did we hold the door? You know, and that's a warrior. Like, that's a warrior's heart. That's somebody who who responded. He was a, a narco officer, saw the Capitol being overrun. This kind of all call went out for the law enforcement. The, the biggest untold story is the role of 800 Metro PD officers that all voluntarily scrambled to the Capitol 
allowing the Capitol Police to retreat inside and protect members. And they went to war on the outside of the Capitol, and especially in that west front door where you saw the battering rams and the dude getting his mask pulled off. And that's where Fanon was. Well, he's, you know, he called all of us that voted for impeachment, just called our, our, our line and said, can I talk to him? Can I talk to him? And I, my staff tells me, I'm like, give me his number. I want to talk to him. So we became fast friends. And he's just been wanting to talk to Kevin, not to go, you know, be a dick to Kevin, but just to say, look, here's here's my experience, because before you lead your party down this, you just need to hear from me. And Kevin won't meet with him. And I know exactly why he won't meet with him, because it's an uncomfortable conversation. I Look, I get it from Kevin's perspective, if you've already have your mind made up. But the reality is you cannot be a party that talks about how much you love law enforcement. And I think we do. But then turn around and not listen to the guy that talks about how that, you know, kind of noble patriotism that was abused and twisted to happen to, to turn into what happened on January 6th, where you had people using Blue Lives Matters flag, matter, Blue Lives yeah. Matter flags to beat Michael Fanone. I mean, that is a that is a moment where as Republicans, we have to look inside, take accountability for our actions, be honest with the American people, and that is the only way we move on. We do not move on by, as you call it, memory holding January 6th. So let's go back to Kevin McCarthy. Um, and, and, and again, this this is not a complicated story. I don't think he's a deep thinker. Um, I, I, but uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, the... The, the lingering concern about uh, possibly about Kevin McCarthy uh, kneecapping one of his own um, rank ranking members on this negotiation. Um, you, you could say you could sort of sense. I mean, I'm just reading between the lines here um, that there were probably more than 35 members of the conference who were going, what, what, what the hell is McCarthy up to? Why, why would you go ahead with this negotiation and then back out and, this does raise some questions about what kind of a speaker he would be if Republicans, as expected, win back the House next year. It does. And, and you know, I've it, look, I was great friends with Kevin, as everybody thinks they are. And, you know, mm-hmm. I guess later finds out if they are mm-hmm. or aren't. But, and, you know, so it's not easy to it's not easy to do it, to be honest and just say what. But, you know, the reality is. If you look at, for instance, the tactics of the Freedom Club um, over the last whatever eight years, you know, they started out as really concerned about fiscal deficits. Now they're more concerned about, you know, Dr. Seuss. And and what's happened is they've used kind of terroristic actions. They've gone and said things that are, you know, whatever they believe. And then we, in the name of unity, unify. And then the next term, we start from their extreme position and then they go more extreme. So um, with Kevin, you know, I, I think the day I think he showed leadership when he spoke on the floor and said, you know, this is Donald Trump's fault. I think he had an opportunity to pull a, a Mitch McConnell and just kind of move on. And I think Donald would be seen then as this kind of guy just yelling out press releases, you know, from Mar-a-Lago that we may or may not pay any attention to. Instead, he sat around and goes, man, I need to raise money to win the majority because the message evidently doesn't matter. And he went down to Mar-a-Lago pulled down the ambulance, took the paddles out, rubbed them together and goes clear and resurrected Donald Trump's, you know, political influence at that very moment and gave his leadership card to Donald Trump. And so when you see somebody that, you know, here's Donald Trump do a press release and says, you know, this commission needs to end. And then he comes out and says, this commission needs to end. That's not leadership. That's followership. Look, I understand it. He wants to be speaker. 
But this is a moment where not just our party, the country is so desperate for some radical change against the way business is being done that we just can't be silent anymore. So what would have happened if it had gone the other way? So let's go back to that moment right after January 6th. Kevin McCarthy comes out and you know gives a pretty good speech, calling out the president for his lack of leadership. Mitch McConnell's speech is amazing when you listen to it in retrospect because it is so strong and suggests the possibility of even you know criminal prosecution. And they both have flipped and, as you point out, um, have resurrected Donald Trump's influence what would have happened if they both would have taken the off ramp, taken the taken the easy off ramp, said, we're not going to go along with the insurrection. We're going to go along with the commission. We're not going to uh, jump every time uh, we get one of these missives from 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 Mar-a-Lago. Would that have made a difference or would they have been abandoned by their base? I think it would have made a, a massive difference. And, you know, I, I think. Does it mean that Kevin becomes speaker? Maybe not, because there are people that are going to be upset enough to withhold speakership from him. And I think that was in his calculation. But let's think about this right now. I'd say a good solid 30 percent of the Republican Party. You know, if it was a two person race, you know, Donald Trump against, say, Liz Cheney, Liz would get 30. Donald would get 70. And I think that's what the party is right now. The problem is in a primary, that's a blowout. Right. But we have to look at the fact that there are 30 percent and say that's the starting point. I think had, you know, Kevin and, and McConnell, McConnell hasn't been terrible, but had they stayed kind of, you know, Donald Trump doesn't exist, time to move on. I think it would be flipped because I think you're always going to have that hardcore base that are, you know, Trumpers first. But I think when we, if we would have moved on with a healthy agenda for America, redefining conservatism in a way that, that actually works today, talk about, you know, changing government, make it more internet accessible, you know, decentralized, et cetera, and had a real focus like that. Americans, as I heard somebody once say, Americans don't solve problems. They just move on from them. And I think we would be moving on from Donald Trump. And yes, there would be probably the, the view of an open civil war in the party versus just now a purge. Uh, but if you're going to have that open and, and people that are all against open civil war in the party, basically, they need to understand it's not me, Liz Cheney, Kevin McCarthy, you know, Denver Riggleman, whoever that makes the decisions about the future of the party. It is the 76 million voters. And so you have to put this stuff out in public because in absence of presenting, you know, an alternative vision, there is no reason to believe that the 70 percent of our base isn't going to believe the election was stolen because nobody's telling them otherwise that they trust. And so I think you would have had, and it may not be like that, you know, here in, you know, kind of late May, but I think ultimately the party would have moved on from Donald Trump. And now all we're doing is delaying that until the presidential election, when quite honestly is probably more important for us, you know, to have a good solid candidate and take back the White House. But we were too eager for the immediate hit of cash than we are for the actual long-term health. You know, this feels so familiar to me. It feels like we're almost a flashback to 2015 that Republicans are looking at Donald Trump and they see the crazy and they're hoping that somebody else will do something about it or that something will come along or that something will happen. But none of them are willing to lift a finger to do anything about it. So talking about moving on from Donald Trump. 
This, I think, just remains the screaming irony of what happened to Liz Cheney is the excuse that, well, she just wouldn't move on. She wouldn't turn the page. And in fact, you know, what's clear is that with with both the Cheney vote and what happened yesterday, it's so clear that this Republican Party is the one that is refusing to move on from Donald Trump. So I want to ask you about uh, Senator John Thune, who I think is one of these guys that gets it in private. But he said something. Uh, he said the quiet part out loud yesterday to CNN. He's, you know, to, uh, explaining why uh, Republicans were going to kill this commission in the Senate. That they're worried that the findings could be weaponized politically and drug into the next year. Here's his quote: "A lot of our members, and I think this is true a lot of of a lot of House Republicans, want to be moving forward and not looking back. Anything that gets us rehashing the 2020 elections, I think." is a day lost on being able to draw a contrast between us and the Democrats' very radical left-wing agenda. And the reason I say it, it's the quiet part out loud is because he just sort of takes it for granted that your your partisan agenda is more important than the oath you take. Um, it's more important than, I don't know, protecting democracy or national security or finding out the truth. I mean, but that's that's really become the, the norm in our politics, hasn't it? Yeah, sadly it has. And you know, for me, you can walk and chew gum. You can take accountability for what happened January 6th and also oppose the Biden agenda. I mean, yes. And by the way, if you think that even if we don't do a commission, somehow we're going to be able to whitewash, you know, what various members and stuff did, I'll remind you there is still a criminal probe ongoing. And not to mention that history has a tendency to get things right. And uh, it's going to look back and say it's not going to you know, acquit anybody that was involved in January 6th. And I think the most important thing is this, too. There's never, you know, in a two-year election cycle, in a four-year presidential cycle, there's never a time, uh, you know, that's extremely convenient to, you know, do a re some real housekeeping and, and kind of, you know, looking at the plank in our own eye instead of pointing out the speck in the other person's eye, as the Bible talks about. But if there is a time to do it, it's right after an election when you're coming up on a midterm versus a presidential election, a.k.a. right now, because we have a lot of time to come back from the damage that's going to be that's already been revealed. If people think that the vast majority of Americans don't you know, hold the Republicans responsible if we don't do a commission, they're wrong. They do anyway. They hold us responsible because we are responsible. And you had mentioned something about, you know, leadership and and I, I it, it still amazes me. You're, how people expect that the Republican Party is going to have some organic awakening, you know, short of literally a miracle where they are just all of a sudden like, what did we do? You know, it's time to move on without, you know, leaders saying something. And what we are right now is, you know, leaders are looking at public opinion. Public opinion is following leaders as, you know, was built by humanity at the beginning of time. And we're just a dog chasing our tail, running into traffic. And we keep doing it over and over again instead of finally saying, okay, maybe we just need to lead a little bit. And Cheney's a prime example. You know, I, I, it's, I listen to your podcast every day, by the way. Good job. And, yeah, thank uh, you. But one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, you had talked about, and I forget who wrote it, maybe JVL or something, which is, you know, the 800 times that Donald Trump says the election was stolen versus the four time ch times <laughs> yeah, Cheney yeah. just responded to a question and yet she's the one whose policies we love, hate, or tweet. She's gone, even though we hate Donald Trump's tweets, love his policies, and he's hero. I, you know, the, it's, it, all this reveals is that we are a party 
that is scared of our own shadow because of a man who lost access to Twitter and now just throws out press releases that usually don't even get picked up, but somehow we're still fearful. And, and yet, and, and tell me whether this is this is a correct read, because it, it seems to me that that a lot of your colleagues are looking at one another and they may agree with you, but they're thinking, look, uh, we have to do this in order to win and we're going to win anyway. So they they think this is their strategy. They're they're all in on the denialism on the Trumpism. And so if they take back the House and maybe even the Senate in 2022, won't they say to themselves this worked? This th- this is not suicide. This this is actually, you know, th- you know, this is an act of you know, wild political genius on our part. Yeah, that's what I fear, actually. And and I fear that, you know, it's probably likely we're going to take the majority of the tailwinds, you know, history, all this stuff is in our favor. People like divided government. And the lesson will be because we doubled down with Donald Trump, right? Had we, you know, rejected Trump, we still would have won the majority. And then that lesson could have been because we didn't double down with Donald Trump. And and all that's going to do is empower the Trump faction for the presidential election. By the way, if you think there's a single voter that didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2020, that in 2024 will vote for him if he runs or one of his accolades, uh, you're wrong. And there's no way we win a presidential election if he or somebody like him is our nominee. And um, but I think that's what it is. I think it's And I think there's some people, look, I don't blame everybody because there's some that, you know, let's say they get elected because they're really passionate about putting the free market in healthcare. And they go, Mm -hmm. if I speak out, you know, I'm going to lose my primary and they very well may, and I'm going to be replaced by a crazy person and I won't be able to bring my expertise to healthcare. And they can justify that in their own mind. And I, I agree to the extent they don't have to be as outspoken as me or Liz, but there's also a moment at which no matter what your reason is for being out here, you take an oath to the Constitution of the United States. And if you think that that oath allows you to look past the actions of January 6th and say it was a tourist group, despite you frantically barricading a door on that day, um, I, I mean, it's between you, God, and the oath. But I, I don't see how that is something that, can, that you can truly put through the, yeah, this is honest filter. Uh, the other thing that's obviously happening is that, you know, with, with all of the Trumpification of the leadership of, of, of Congress, the reality is, is that the um, the state parties have become even more extreme, haven't they? Uh, Vice News did this review of the public positions of all 50 Republican state chair uh, persons, and they showed us, this is what they write, shows a significant number are openly pushing conspiracy theories, spouting unhinged rhetoric, and actively undermining voters' trust in democracy. That includes the chairs of nearly every swing state in the U.S., and the trend is accelerating. Many of the most extreme chairs just won their chairmanships or have been reelected since Trump left office four months ago, four months ago, a number of them with his explicit endorsement. So, Adam Kinzinger, what reasonable prospect is there for ever reforming this party since the grassroots is moving even more radically into the fever swamps? And clearly, the the leaders in Washington are not willing to stand up or push back against this. Well, I think it's a legitimate question. And uh, so now I'm, I'm going to get into a quick theory on this. I believe that like party structures have no purpose anymore. I mean, they do have a purpose in terms of setting up primaries, you know, all the kind of legal side of it. But um, you know, for instance, I have a few good you know county parties in my district, and I have a few county parties that are nothing but antagonistic and have always been antagonistic since I've been in Congress. And 
I've realized none of the county parties with one or two exceptions has, has ever given me a check. They ask me for money all the time. And the money they use in the county party is to simply set up the Lincoln Day dinner where they basically break even on and uh, don't even really do a lot to support local candidates. Hmm. Um, state party, you kind of see the same thing a little bit. And especially in a state like Illinois, Wisconsin, too, but particularly Illinois, when you're a you know minority party, you probably should be having adult discussions about who is the most electable person. And instead, you know, we have a primary for governor where, you know, they're trying to outcompete each other on who was more anti-masker. Great. By the way, this this is this is, you know, Illinois, who's more anti-masker, right? That's yeah, I doubt you're going to win a national election with that. So, I think in terms of the long-term prospects of the party, look, I I I have become, you know, I probably said on your podcast when I did it back after the insurrection, like I think by summer Trump's persona non grata. I, I don't believe that anymore. Um, I think the effort to reform the party is going to take a long time. Um, and I think we're just going to have to take it day by day. And ultimately, if it's not reformable, uh, there, there will be a different party that pops up because people cannot feel unrepresented forever. But I do, I, I'm holding out hope that actually the people the American people are not any more polarized and radicalized. There's a lot of stuff that shows that they're actually kind of the same that they've always been. It's the parties that have self-selected to radicalization, and that will have to self-correct or something new is going to pop up. Well, what's also interesting at all is all the um, what's, what's, what's happening to some of the Trump wannabes, uh, the, re- the replacements. I, 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 th- I found it very interesting that there was a poll of Republican voters who they would vote for. And of course, you know, Trump, you know, is about half the half the vote, which you'd sort of expect. But um, Josh Hawley, who has really been trying to get a lot of attention for his pro uh, his pro crew politics pro coup politics and for his attacks on big uh big tech did you notice what he came in at he clocked in at zero percent of the vote so for all of the stuff that the cruises and the hollies have been doing they're getting no traction whatsoever which kind of raises the question about how you replace trump if if for some reason it wasn't trump all of these people say i'm i'm going to be the next guy None of them seem to be making that much headway with maybe the exception of uh, Ron DeSantis down in Florida. Yeah, I, <laughs> I got to tell you, when I saw that poll, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I looked down, seeing Holly at zero was like the best thing that happened to me that I, day. I have to admit, that I kind of I, I kind of trolled on that one, too. Yeah, yeah Just, and it's like Liz Cheney is getting 100 percent more votes than than Josh Holly. It was awesome. Um, look, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh you know, everybody that goes to Congress or to uh, the Senate, you know, thinks they're going to be president. But so many of them, like Cruz and Holly, just decide I'm going to go be a complete, you know, douche. And yeah, and uh, that's going to work. Well, there's people trying to out douche each other right now. And, you know, they're not getting enough attention. Uh, I do think DeSantis probably has a good shot. And if he can, you know, from his perspective, if he can pivot to kind of a, a normal dude, you know, he, he may take this thing. But you know, I, I think it's so early still and probably end up being somebody that we're not even talking about now. I would love to see Liz run and, and actually have a solid, you know, 25% of the vote uh, at the beginning and, and, and have a forum to be able to just tell the truth. And she may win. So I haven't talked to you since uh, since the, the the purge, the cancellation of, of Liz Cheney. And I sort of remember the I have this image in my head of, you know, you coming out after the caucus vote where they just did a voice vote. 
And you were like, that was pretty fast. You weren't kind of expecting, you know, that was going to play out that way. I mean, it was, and, and and I was looking around waiting for other people to stand up and support her. And I, I sort of made a, a, a short list and there was Adam Kinzinger and <laughs> it was, it, it was kind of you. I mean, it's like, you know, in the, in, in the high school cafeteria, are, are you and Liz like sitting at the table by yourself over in the corner? <laughs> yeah, kind of. No, you know, it's funny. We we still get along with everybody kind of one-on-one, but like, yeah, that that whole day I went there, you know, and I showed up five minutes late because, you know, they always start 10 minutes late, but they were already deep in it. You know, Kevin had already given his speech. So I sit down and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, it's a voice vote. He's like, can we just take this by voice? And uh, yeah, you know, hurrah. And so you know, the yeses, the noes, and then it's like, boom, gavel down, done. And I, 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 uh, I think it was Tom Reed stood up and goes, well, hey, hey, let's uh, take a deep breath here. And like, sorry, too late. The gavel already came down. Like, you know, there's some, unho- there's some holy rule that we can't break. And it was done. And, you know, Liz had basically at one point, Kevin's like, can we just take a voice vote? And Liz just looks at him and goes, whatever you want to do, Kevin, like just whatever you want to do. I actually thought that was, that was great. Cause she's like, you know, whatever, if you want to, cause the thing from her perspective, I think if she'd have, you know, put a real effort in, she might've come close to surviving, but from her perspective, it's like, so what, I'm going to do this every two weeks. I'm going to have to deal with an attempt to overthrow me every two weeks. And I think it's genius. Look, I give the other side a ton of credit for their geniusness of this. Cause you know, after January 6th, I was kind of pondering, we need to have a real vote of confidence or no confidence on Kevin, because this is, you know, two days before the insurrection, I was on a conference call and I said, Kevin, our lies about the election are going to lead to violence. And he goes, thanks, Adam. Next question, you know, disregarded it. And so I'm like, you know, we at least deserve a discussion about that. And we decided for the sake of unity and moving on and trying to heal that, you know, we would just do that. And next thing you know, you know, a month later, Liz is on the chopping block twice. And, uh, you know, I think she finally just said, fine, I'm liberated. I'm going to tell the truth. And even if she loses her primary, which I think she can win, but, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be, yeah. it's be hard. And, uh, but I think, you know, her calculation is you now have a forum to tell the truth to people and telling the truth is worth it. Because otherwise, if you just go, you do what you have to do to win. You don't tell the truth. You're stuck in the same cycle. So is the party. And you have the same moral kind of, tear at your heart that you have anyway. And you know, Liz has always fought authoritarianism in her entire life, like her father. And I think she sees this here in this country and says, I'm going to fight authoritarianism here at home. And it's going to be hard, but we're going to do it. Well, of course, one of the ironies of all of this is that the the attempt to cancel her has given her a much bigger platform than she ever had before. She's 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 much more. Um, she's obviously you know exponentially better known now than she was as the number three uh, member of House leadership. I mean, let's be honest about it. Outside of Washington, nobody knows who the chairman of the you know House conference is, but you know people know who Liz Cheney is right now. So let me ask you this because you 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 get this a lot, I'm I'm sure, but it's it's sort of it's maxed out with with her what took her so long to really break with trump if if she's against authoritarianism you know she voted against the first impeachment she went along with almost all of trump's policies she voted for him for re-election you know th- there have been a lot of us who've been saying hey guys this is really really bad this this is, is horrible um you know the, the red lines are being crossed over and over and over again 
And until January 6th, she she hung in there. Now, I understand mm-hmm. and I'm I'm I am completely open to, you know, people, you know, you know, you know, falling off the horse on the way to Damascus. I get I get that. But in, 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 in her particular case or even in yours, what took so long, do you think? Yeah, I think what it's it's so I'll put you in kind of the mind of of where we were at the time. You know, you look at I mean, Liz and I had been talking to each other about some of the stuff going on since she's been in Congress and, uh, you know, and, and expressing concerns and stuff on the first impeachment. Let's just be honest. This was if I could go back in time with what I know now, I'd vote for it like in a heartbeat. Right. Yeah. And I wouldn't vote for Donald Trump in 2020. I didn't vote for him in 16. But um, that said, at the you know, when the Democrats had made the decision to kind of rush impeachment out after, you know, before Christmas. I think they could have waited. They could have mm-hmm. had some witnesses. They could have done a better job on the first time. So you can use that as the excuse to say, okay, well, they're not taking it seriously. So let's, let's move on on this. I'll say though, throughout those four years, Liz and I, to an extent, you know, would call out Trump more than anybody else, you know, at appropriate times, you know, Liz and I went to the White House, for instance, after Donald decided, you know, randomly, he was just going to pull all the troops from Syria. And I think made a real impact on the decision not to do that um, and, and made an influence. But I think where the real the real line of demarcation happened. Yeah, I mean, look, let's be honest. A lot of Donald Trump's policies were conservative policies that we would support. I didn't like his foreign policy, but some of the domestic stuff I was OK with, not his tone. But the day that the election happened and then he began undermining that even prior to that, but particularly after the election, that's when you go from this is a dude I don't like to this is a guy that's really dangerous to democracy. And I think and I've heard you talk about this, right. you know, the. The, the people that'll say you'll hear from the Democrats, well, she's evil. She still votes for X, Y, and Z and this kind of stuff. It's like, okay, you have to determine is the most important thing right now, abortion or this issue or this issue, maybe it is to you. I personally think the most important issue right now is the preservation of U.S. democracy because it is that fragile and she's a hero in that. And so I think the big change for a lot of us happened um, Basically, when he started undermining the election, then when, you know, I came on your podcast and you asked me if there was going to be 10 people voting against certification. And I said, oh, there's going to be 100. And you're like, holy crap, no way. And then there was like 100 bajillion. Like, that's when you start to realize this thing is is cray cray ridic and we have to stand up and and say some big things here boy you know i i remember that moment i'm i was sitting right here and i remember what, what i was doing when i was thinking when, when you said uh because i because at that time people were talking about was it gonna be a dozen uh, republicans that would vote to overturn the election maybe a yeah. dozen or so i mean i just have a handful and you said maybe a hundred and i it really did feel i know it's a kind of a cliche about a gut punch but I, that i really did experience it that way and of course it turned out to be even worse than that and i and i guess that's what i keep coming back to is that if you actually believe that this is an existential threat to democracy, then you should act like it. Then, you know, the your, your position on, you know, federal child care subsidies becomes less salient than these fundamental issues. Um, speaking of, of threats, and I, I, I think that one of the things that we always wrestle with is you don't want to be hysterical. You don't want to believe, you know, in things that aren't necessarily going to happen. On the other hand, Sometimes I think we have a failure of imagination of how bad things can be. And as we look back on that period that you just mentioned, between the election and January 6th and January 20th, 
that was beyond most people's worst case scenarios. And the more we learn about the efforts that Trump was was taking to overturn this election, they were not just going through the motions. This could have happened. And the fact that there was this active discussion of using the military. And I, I know that seems so extreme, but you go back and look at the record you know, Michael Flynn in the Oval Office talking about using the army. The concern was so great that Department of Defense officials had to release statements. Liz Cheney herself um, was one of those people who got all of the living former secretaries of defense to sign a letter saying, hey, by the way, coups are bad in America. We should not have the military overturn an election. The fact that we actually experienced that is still mind boggling. And it makes you wonder what the threats are going forward, because this is not done yet. And I mean, that that's the, mo- the, the fundamental, uh, most powerful argument, I think, for the, the January 6th commission, right, is that this thing is not over, that if we don't deal with that, then we could we could experience worse in the future. You're, you're 100 percent right. And I think using the imagination, you know, back in October, we'd have we'd have you know, talked about what was going to happen as a theory, we'd be like, ah, it's not going to happen. But, you right. know, it's, it's, um, I think, you know, somebody had uh, had said, maybe it was on your podcast again, I guess, where, where it was like, if you actually took a poll in the Republican Party of would you support the military reinstalling Donald Trump as president, that would be probably humbling and frightening to see. So let's run through this. Let's say, you know, because the last institution of government that is not politicized is the military, and it's on its way to being politicized. And, you know, yes, obviously Congress is politicized. Nobody trusts Congress, even though this should be an institution that has high trust numbers because it re- most directly represents the people. The military is being politicized. So let's say that on that day, you know, the <clears throat> let's say the Supreme Court comes out with something like is happening in El Salvador, for instance. My wife is Salvadorian. The president there, Supreme Court declared something. He just said, no, nah, I'm not going to do it, sent the police over. And uh, can you imagine something like that happening here? I, I actually think that's possible at some point. And I think, you know, if you have the military, basically, you know, you put out enough information that it looks like it's stolen. And I'm a military member. If I believed, if I truly believed an election was stolen and the Constitution was being undermined, I would, as a sworn officer in the military, uh, feel that it is my duty to defend the Constitution. If you yeah. convince enough people, you could see the military, either military leaders declaring something or military members breaking off and acting. I think it is a real serious concern. And I, I, I just I, I think this is what every Republican needs to understand. And frankly, every Democrat is we have to get back to putting the country in the Constitution before any party needs, because the things that we argue about now you know, tax rates and all this kind of stuff. When if you literally have a failed society and government, that's going to pale in comparison to my dad is on heart medicine and the supply chain has failed. I can't get his heart medicine. He's got about a week left to live. Those are real concerns that or the municipal water system doesn't work anymore. That kind of stuff. If you have a failed government and ladies and gentlemen, that is what we're on track to because Congress is created to take all this fiery passion, distill it into a political argument and let the steam out. Well, we're not doing political arguments anymore. We're chasing members of Congress off the floor, yelling at them, making them feel unsafe. 
And it's basically becoming an extension of what's happening in society. And it's frightening. And I have to do a, a, a quick plug for Country First, which is, you know, a, a movement I started. We have over 40,000 members just saying, look, put the country above and, and learn to talk to each other again. So I'd encourage people it's country1st.com. Go and take a look. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if that was going to happen. I did, I just get the sense that um, that it's going to get worse. Um, and and to your your point, you know, there are real consequences to tens of millions of people believing that the election was stolen. And and I I, w- I would encourage people to you know just imagine if if it was reversed, what you would be prepared to do. And see, that's right. why it is so dangerous. Although all of this talk about the military coup and everything, I keep wondering when, when people show up with the guns or when they talk about this. Um, and you correct me if you, if I'm, if I'm wrong here, you, 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 you use a gun in the military, um, to either deter or to kill, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, um, who are you going to be shooting? Who are you going to be arresting? Right. What, what is the, what is the plan here? Um, when you talk about it, but loose talk like this can lead to things. And I think that's the lesson of January 6th, is that this kind of rhetoric, these kinds of fears can can have consequences. We already know that. So was January 6th like this one-off deal or is, a, is it a warning of where we go if we keep doing this? Because we are continuing to do exactly what led to January 6th. That may have been somewhat convoluted, but this is why I think that it, it's appropriate to be to be alarmed here. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I like what you said. So imagine if, you know, imagine if it really was BLM and Antifa that did what happened on the Capitol. By the way, if these members of Congress believed that, they would be desperate for a January 6th commission. They wouldn't be trying to sweep anything under the rug. And if it was actually BLM and Antifa, they would be up in arms, up in arms. But instead, they know it was them. And instead of taking ownership, and taking, you know, a, a, a humble pill, they just want to sweep it under the rug. And you're right. All it will lead to is more problems. Well, and also the other failure of imagination is that we can all remember, I think, the way we reacted to the prospect of, of Isla- radical Islamic terrorism and al-Qaeda. Um, right. And now, though, the, the threat, the real threat is domestic terrorism. And it's interesting that we are not dealing with the domestic terror threat with anything like the approach that we took to Al Qaeda back in uh, uh, back in uh, after 9-11. Adam Kinzinger, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I know it's going to be a very busy day for you. It's been a very, very busy week and we appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, brother. Thanks. Uh, Adam Kinzinger um, on uh, the Bulwark podcast, once again, reminding me of that uh, that one gut punch. So for those of you who think that sometimes we are we're too alarmist, that it can't quite get that bad. I do remember that time we had that conversation about how many Republicans would vote to overturn the election. I'll tell you, the thing that really scares me is that I keep thinking, you know, that, well, in the back of your mind, you're thinking that, well, you know, you know, the, the good guys will stand up and do the right thing. But at this point, you know what? Uh, if it comes down to uh, whether or not uh, my fellow cheesehead Mike Gallagher is going to stand up for democracy, can't be that confident anymore. Sorry to take the cheap shot. Uh, thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.